There we go. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Community Bible Study, um, the Book of Acts, Lesson 3. So we're going to start with Marilyn Stargard's devotion. It's human nature at its best. When someone tells us we can't do something, we buck up, get in their face, and say, oh, yay, watch me. In their distorted faith and religious misconceptions, the high priests and Pharisees could have literally poured gasoline on the smoldering embers of the gospel of Christ and lit a match, blazing saddles. The embers whoosh up and the fire in the hearts of the disciples is more fervent than ever. You can't tell people on fire for the Lord to blow out their candles. The wise Jewish leaders in their full righteousness, thought they could bully the disciples with their laws and legalism. As we know from the preaching of Peter and Paul, legalism simply cannot fight the power of the gospel which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2.9 Through their dogmatic tenets, the Jewish leaders were actually encouraging the disciples to become more committed to spreading the word of God. Intellectually and rationally, Rationally, their laws and canons were twisted interpretations of the Old Testament commandments and were man-made doctrines, deficient and defective to the Lord. They were so embedded in the soil of the law at all its technicalities, they lost sight of the reason God gave the law, not as a textbook of rules, but as a means to understand the nature of God. If their hearts were not so hardened, they would have understood that the law was based not on fear or punishment, but on compassion and love. Peter especially struggled with these Old Testament laws until he learned about the power of God's grace in his visions and ministry. What these priests and elders failed to comprehend was that the apostles and disciples had the fire of the Holy Spirit embedded on them at Pentecost. And like Stephen the martyr, who had the wisdom of the Spirit in the face of an angel, Acts 6, 10 and 15, they were ready and willing to suffer and even die for Jesus, which, with the exception of John, most of them did. Paul described them as the super apostles in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done, done among you with great perseverance. During Jesus' appearance to the apostles after his resurrection, you'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us find that decisive line of discernment between the rigid rules of legalism and the grace our Holy Father bestows upon us. Give us the wisdom to accept the nature of God through the immeasurable love he felt for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Marilyn, if you're listening. Um, because I'm moving so slow, I had to ask her yesterday to add another one that I can put right in the middle to slow, because she's going to get ahead of me, because um, it's, it's going kind of slow, which leads me to an embarrassing question. I, I have, my notes go a few weeks ahead, and I've taught it before. I forgot to mark where we left off last week, so I'm a little unsure. I, I know we were talking about Peter healing the man, the crippled man in the temple. We got through that, correct? Did we talk about the sermon he, he said after that? The sermon that he preached after that, like in Peter, uh, uh, in Acts uh, 3.11. Okay. I think we got through the end of lesson I, two on, on this. That's not, but that's not my sheet. 
Those don't go with my Bible class. Oh. Um, yeah. Those are like supplemental things to Margaret, which which are great um, supplements. But so I'm I'm a little different than that. You know what? I'm just going to sum up that sermon anyways, and then we'll start from there. Um, because we're usually obviously going verse by verse, but I want to just uh, go back to that. So Peter heals the crippled man in the um, in the temple, and he was uh, uh, asking for alms, which was um, the way of the of the people back then. You would the crippled man would be at the at the gate of the of the temple, the the gate called Beautiful, um, which is this seventy five foot high brass double doors, and asking for alms, and it was the the um, the Jewish people were asked to give the alms to to give money to this to to people that were begging, it, and what Peter does, if you remember, he does not give the money, but instead he heals them him in in the name of God, and he got up and he walked and he leaped and everyone saw it because they were at the temple, and this is where we are going to pick up today. So then Peter speaks to the onlookers about that and again gives a sermon turning all the glory and all the praise to God and, and another chance to spread the gospel about how Jesus died for our sins. He evokes the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you see that, it is reminding the people um, of the covenant that God had with his people. And so let's pick up in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Okay, the Sadducees these uh, leaders of the church. This is the oldest joke in Christianity, probably. I, maybe only pastors do this joke, but I always, how I remember who the Sadducees were, what their beliefs were. They did not believe in the resurrection. So when Peter's talking about the resurrection, they're not believing this. So this is going to you know, upset them even more. You can remember that because they're sad, you see. So that is, yeah. So I'm sure you've heard it a million times. My husband uses it every time that he can talk about Sadducees. So we have the Sadducees. You're going to hear about the priests. There's three different groups of priests. So when you hear about priests, there's those serving for the week. There's the temple guard, which are members of a leading priestly family. And then the Sadducees. Those were the Jewish sect whose members are from a priestly line and they control the temple. They're concerned because more people have just been converted. Um, we are up to uh, about 5,000 people now. And in part that I just kind of summarized before you, it talks about more people being converted. So, oh, no, that's coming up. Sorry. Um, verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and be because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. It's okay if you have a few hundred people believe in this new idea, this new religion, if you have it, if you will. But we're up to thousands of people. This is the ruling class of priests who are not believing what's being preached, and they're losing control. And I know all of you have studied the Bible enough to understand you know, in the time of Jesus, how political all this was, too. It, the, the priests were not just religious leaders. This was a political problem as well. And it's hard to rule people when they're leaving you in, in, this, in these numbers. So they're arrested. It's evening, so they can't um, do anything about this. They can't have any kind of trial or anything, so they're going to go into jail. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. 
Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you hear this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this stand, man stands before you healed. Always, when it comes from God, they're going to give God the credit. People claim they're doing miracles and healing, and you don't see God's credit given in any of them. It is not from God. When people do it uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to say, and look at the the confidence that Peter is getting in his preaching. Here's the man that wasn't too long ago was so scared sitting around a fire that he denied the Lord three times, and now he's boldly preaching through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that, that they could do the same thing to him and crucify him. And then he says, uh, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. This, he's quoting Psalms here. If in, in my Bible, it's in quotation marks because he's quoting Psalms. Um, some scholars will say that the, the, the capstone or the cornerstone is Jerusalem, but most people would probably uh, agree that, it, that he's talking about Jesus here. He was rejected, and he's become the capstone or cornerstone, cornerstone or keystone. Uh, this was my uh, rabbit hole this week. More time on this verse, which you've all heard a million times, and I could have just read quickly. But um, they would understand the imagery in the Old Testament when this was written, and in the New Testament, they're talking about the building of the temple. All of the temple stones were chiseled and created off-site, so on-site of the building of Solomon's temple, the, you didn't hear the noise. You didn't have that process. They were The stones would come ready, and they would be put in. Different Bibles have different words. Some of them say capstone. Some say cornerstone. It depends on the translation. Did a lot of research on this, and the word can really be used different ways. Um, so Jesus, of course, is our corner, cornerstone. But he's also the capstone. The capstone or the keystone, keystone would be the top capstone, is what's on top of a doorway. If that's not in right, everything falls on you. So we're not going to spend the hour just picking apart this verse, but it makes a lot of sense with some of Jesus' teachings about he, and that would be like the last thing that goes in. And without that, without that, that doorway that you try to walk through would, would come down on you. So either way, um, the importance in that th Christ is the center. He's the one holding up whatever we do. And he was rejected. And now, look at him. He's, whether you say capstone or cornerstone, he, he's the one. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by, by which we must be saved. A very important verse for then and for now, too, because... I think as Christianity gets watered down and there's people that very much believe that um, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but they like saying, well, you know, there's many ways or whatever you believe, as long as you're a nice person, you're going to get there. The Bible says there's one way. And they're, so they're preaching they're one, the one way to heaven and they're preaching it as Jesus Christ. And there are people here that do not believe Jesus Christ came as the Savior and the Son of God. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were 
unschooled ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note of these that these men had been with Jesus. These aren't these scholars that you would usually find teaching in the temple. These were not the men who had been trained in this. These were just ordinary people that, that Christ chose, the fishermen, the tax collectors. These were the people, the ordinary men, and that did not go unnoticed as it doesn't go unnoticed today. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So what are they going to do? Like, this man's healed. They, I think they're going to know they're going to have... Uh, a riot on their hands if they, if they punish these two people for healing this man that probably the, the people of Jerusalem know pretty well because this is probably not, this isn't the first day he's been sitting out at the at the gates of the temple asking for alms. They, they know him. They know these people, um, the beggars. So they, they can't deny the miracle and they're kind of stuck. Um, they can get him on the teachings. They You have to be, uh, get permission to be teaching. You, um, uh, it has to be approved by the leaders. So they could get them on that, yeah. But they can't get them on the healing. That's a good thing. So they're kind of stuck. So they say to them, oh, just don't teach the, just don't preach the word of Jesus anymore. Like, you know, that's not going to work. But that's, you know, they're like, it, it's kind of rem reminiscent of when they were trying to get Jesus on charges, you know, of blasphemy. And what are we going to do with this guy? How are we going to get him? And we're, we're, we're in that same kind of structure right now. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Then verse 23, this beautiful prayer called the, in my Bible, it's, in, it's titled the Believer's Prayer. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So like I, like I said last week and probably the week before, it's so important to these Jewish believers that there's this connection to the scripture that they know, to what we call the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same God, and they have to have that connection, or like I said, game over. So you see Peter always um, quoting the Old Testament, using the Old Testament, the God of our forefathers, because this is who he's preaching to. He's preaching to the, to the Jews and at this point, even though God has said this gospel is going to spread, their focus is, is the Jews. That's Peter's ministry. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
they did not pray that this persecution would go away. They prayed that they, they would be bold to speak your word. Great lesson here, because often our prayer is, take this away from me, God, not enable me to be able to, to meet this head on uh, in your word and, and proclaim your word through our problems. Um, I will admit, that's my first prayer. Lord, take this away from me, not equip me to handle it because it's easier if he takes it away. Um, so uh, the, these, they, they know what could happen to them. They saw what happened to Jesus, but they still they perform the miracles through, through Jesus. Give me the strength to do that. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The Holy Spirit coming through again, giving them the strength. This is, he does that for us today. Call on the name of the Holy Spirit, and he will give us that. The believers share their possessions, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Again, we heard this before, but they're, they're, they're all of one mind and heart. They're sharing with everybody. It's, it's this more of a communal thing that we see in this part of Acts. Again, we see it for the Jerusalem believers because this is what God needed for them at this time, not what, what we see later on in the Bible when we get to the Gentiles, and not what we need to see here. Not that it's not good to share what we have, but God does not specifically call us in this day to live in a communal situation. And uh, and again, I said before, but people will take Acts 2 like it is meant, or Acts, the book of Acts, to, to set up a church in the same way. There's so many good principles in here, so many good things we, we need to be doing, but we also need to not forget the lesson that God will equip our church in our day for what he needs to be done. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it in the apostles at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite, Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which name, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And we are going to hear a lot more about Barnabas later as he becomes a companion of Paul. The uh, it says that Barnabas was a Levite. Now Levites um, did not own land according to Old Testament rules. So it's a little contradictory if people are really picking the Bible apart, saying, well, this can't be right. Could be a couple things happening here. It, where, he, where he was from Cyprus, they may not have had that rule anymore that a Levite couldn't own land. Or it also could have been um, his wife's land. His wife could have had land and they could have sold it and given, and given the money. So it's, I don't think it's contradictory to the word of God. You just have to look into that a little deeper. So... Um, but we really see in this passage the unity they had and almost, I would say, this, this pureness of a church. Uh, in today's terms, everybody's on the same page. So um, it's very important that, that God preserve that unity as his church is spreading. Because we're about to come up to this, one, what I thought was one of the most disturbing little stories in the, in the New Testament until, and I've, like I said, I just taught this uh, last year 
I still didn't like it, but I really got into it this year and realized what God was doing through it. But it's this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so I'm on chapter 5, and I'm going to just read this to you. Usually I would have you guys help read this, but I think for the sake of the recording that that it's right there, the microphone, that I'm going to read this today. So I don't mean to leave you out of that, but it's just easier for that sake. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So he's doing the same thing. So we just see Barnabas doing it. We hear of other people selling their possessions and giving them to the needy. So they're going to get on board with this too. And uh, like, okay, we're going we're to sell our property. But then they quietly keep some back. So remember, that's, there's two things going on. They sold the property and kept some back. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? He said he lied to the Holy Spirit and he kept some land. The sin here is the lying to the Holy Spirit. Because Paul goes on to say, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. So he didn't have to even sell this land, but he did. So what is he doing it for? Is he doing it for his own glory? So people can say, look what he gave. He, he could have kept it. He could have just given, given some money. But he acted like he gave it all. But the Holy Spirit knows you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. And this is, is what the real sin was and what, what Peter is, is calling him out for. God has told Peter he did this. Remember, this church has got to be pure. This is, as I say every week, this is the acts of, really, acts of the Holy Spirit is, is what we should call this whole book. And if people are going to see in this early stage of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ's resurrection that you can lie to the Holy Spirit after they just received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's kind of game over again. So he goes on to say, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I guess so. Great fear would seize you. It's like one lie, boom, dead. It does, and it just, you know, God is the one striking them down, whether he used an instant heart attack, however he did, he's the one. It's not saying that Peter killed them. This is not um, as violent as some of the things we see in the Old Testament. God is, is taking them down. It, he, nowhere in here do we see that he says they were condemned to hell. Um, so I think we, we can't assume that. Um, and maybe if you know you want to study that and come back to me with, with um, 
a little more study on that next week, I would I would appreciate that. But what I've found is that I don't think we can say they went to hell. But this is a warning to the people not to lie to the Holy Spirit. I don't see proof today at all that God is just striking down people who lie to the Holy Spirit because I know who would be teaching this class. It, seriously, this haven't we all done something maybe kind of equal to this? You know, and it's not about money. People sometimes interpret this as like is like God saying, you know, you have to give it all. Uh, it, that's again, that's not why they were struck down. It was lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to to the church and saying, yeah, yeah, we gave you our land. No, you didn't. And I, and I also, money is such a sensitive thing in the church, always is. Um, and you know, the Bible says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money that's the root of all evil. And so is it money that they loved? Kind of thinking it might be more the glory that they that they were after here. Yeah, you know, we're going to be leaders in your church. We're going to give everything we have, just like Barnabas and everybody that's going to love what we do. And I, and I caution people, I, I, I don't find a lot of, of people that are doing this, but what I find is people overly praising people that give gifts sometimes. They, Look what they did. Look what they give. And my answer is that's great. And it's great that they praise the Lord that way. But remember, there's also people quietly giving their gifts every Sunday morning in a collection plate that you may never know what they're giving. And so it, it's very hard to praise someone for giving a gift when you don't really know what their heart is. So yes, we should. And, and I really find that the people I know kind of give it quietly under the radar and they don't want the praise for it. Um, so just remember that every, everybody gives gifts in different ways and you know, the Holy Spirit will call you to do that. Just don't lie to him and act like he gave so much when you know you didn't because he's going to know that. So <laughs> praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for not striking us dead when we don't do what we're supposed to. Um, but again, this goes back to keeping this church pure. You cannot have you cannot have this happening now. The snowball effect is going to undermine everything that's being accomplished. And when he's, and then it says, great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. The first time we see the word church used in this context as this New um, Testament church after the resurrection. So here we do see the word church. I was under the impression always for some reason that we, we, we they weren't called the church. It is called the church. This is where we see it, um, that they are coming together now. Then in verse 12, the apostles heal many. So more miracles are happening in the name of Jesus. The apostles performed many miracles, signs, and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And this is a result of what we see with Ananias and Sapphira. What is this saying? Well, they're in Solomon's colonnade. That's part of the temple. The temple, actually Solomon's temple, was pretty small, but when Herod... Uh, remodel the temple. It was just grand and had all these outer courts. And so they were there. They still went to the temple. These were still Jewish people who went to the temple and worshiped God. They weren't participating in sacrifice anymore because they believed that Jesus fulfilled all of that. But they were still at the temple preaching. When it says no one dared to join them, it doesn't mean that um, they were there all by themselves. But, but people were not going to just carelessly join this movement casually because they see that the Holy Spirit is, is going to demand a, a allegiance, basically a pure heart 
we see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, so people are more cautious. So what this is doing is really creating a, a pure church, a church where people are very committed. Um, this really struck home with me when I read through this this time because I think what I see is, is the church kind of at conflict with this even today. There are some churches who, when you join, they have almost de- demands of you. And they're maybe good demands. You need to come to Bible class. You need to volunteer. You need to be part of our community. This you're you're not just joining our community as someone who comes in when they please and sits in the back and does nothing. I can see the benefit of that in a way because I see people in those churches. I know people personally in those kind of churches who are very committed. But then I really also see the other side of it because there are people who are not ready to do that. And there are people who just want to walk in every once in a while, sit in the back, not have the com- commitment, but they're hearing the word of God. So as a church, where, where, where does the church need to stand? And this is something that we can discuss after, after the lecture's done. But maybe it's timing. Maybe a person comes for so long, and then the leadership of the church, the congregation of the church, says, you know, we want you to step up now. And, and, and I know from being a pastor's wife, people always put that on the pastor. Well, you need to get the people involved, but it's really the congregation who, who steps in and, and can really do that too. You know, coming to Bible class, being involved, volunteering. So I think it's an, it's an age-old question, and I really had a, a view of one way is better than the other until I, I got into this a little more, and maybe there's some kind of hybrid solution to it all. But there's nothing wrong with calling your members, uh, you know, to, to uh, making your members live up to a higher calling and saying, you're part of our church, and we need you, we need you to really be committed to this. But then what do you do to the person that comes in and says, I can't do that, I'm out. So let's discuss that after. Um, As a result, verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. It was not uncommon at the time that you would uh, believe that even a shadow could heal you. And it's reminiscent of when someone touched Jesus' cloak to, to be healed. So again, just like when Jesus came, it wasn't, it wasn't about the miracles and signs of wonders that Jesus came, nor was it the, the mission of the apostles to do that, but it was a way that, to get people to come to learn about the resurrected um, Savior. So uh, then uh, the apostles persecuted. So we see this coming. The church is going to be persecuted. But I always say, if a church isn't persecuted, it gets lazy and it doesn't spread out. So this is going to get the church to spread out so that they can go and make disciples of all nations. That's that's what Jesus told them to do, go and make disciples of all nations. And they're still in Jerusalem, so they need to, to get out and, and spread around. So verse 17, Then the high priest... And all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. 
So we see an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. Um, so it's just a regular angel, not 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 Christ. As when you know you hear the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that refers usually to Christ. This is just an angel of the Lord opens the doors and they're back out preaching again. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. That's the full assembly of all the elders of Israel and sent to, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So they didn't re they're not going to resist. They're going to go along with the guards. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They won't even say Jesus. Um, it's just this name. He said, you have... Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, referring to Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you, you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins of, to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So every time, I say it every time, but they're, they're preaching Christ crucified, who rose from the dead to forgive our sins, that we can go into heaven. It's such a great example of preaching every time we see this, that it's in the name of Jesus. And... When we, when we go and make disciples of all nations, we have to remember that this is who we're preaching. This is who we're teaching. We're teaching about Jesus. It has to be part of that conversation. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But the Pharisees named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. So Gamaliel is a teacher of Paul. We're going to start talking about Paul soon. Paul was a rabbi. Gamaliel was his teacher. Very respected by everyone. This is not what we usually see in the Bible, but Luke is going to quote Gamaliel. So he's, um, in my Bible at least, and it should be in yours, but there were, there's quotation marks because he is, is quoting someone else and not like Jesus or not saying this is what scripture said. He's, he's bringing this in. When you really get into studying some of the things like, like Paul says too, if, if you know the history of the time and who some of the other leaders were, you see that he does the same thing and he quotes things that the people would know. And like I said, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It's written to the people of the time. So Gamaliel would have really meant something to these church leaders. He was very respected. 
And he says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. So he's referring to two other men who came along getting followers and, and starting this, this new sect. They didn't amount to anything, he's saying. They had a few hundred people. They were killed. It was all for nothing. So he's telling them, he's warning them, why are you getting involved, making a big deal out of this? It could be nothing. Just kind of slow down and see what's going to happen. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But it, it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And here's the real warning. If it's nothing, don't worry about it. But if it's God, you, you don't even know what you're in for because he knows that they can't, they can't fight against that. His speech, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Flogging would be 40 lashes. Uh, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So they, um, they were energized by this. They rejoiced because they're worthy enough to, to go through this. Um, I, I asked the confirmation kids a few years ago when I, used to teach confirmation, and now I fill in sometimes. But I asked the kids to, I asked them the question, you know, how long has it been since someone has has been persecuted for Jesus and suffered, we were talking about suffering physical harm, like flogging or, you know, being martyred. And um, except for one girl who knew more about the Bible than I did, most people, most at least that age group, really think this just doesn't even happen anymore, that people are physically persecuted. This is not something... That we, that we know as adults just happens in the Bible. People are being physically abused. They're being killed still in the, in the name of Jesus. And these men knew that this could happen. They just saw Christ be crucified, and yet this gave them more boldness to go out and preach the name of Christ. So quickly I'm going to go through one more passage before we do discussion. Next week we are going to start um, with the story of the first martyr, Stephen. But um, verse six, uh, chapter six talks about the choosing of the seven. So now, as we said, we have the church coming together. They're pooling their money. Everybody's being taken care of. But the church always has to have some leadership. And there's always um, housekeeping things, if you will, that need to be done, which, trust me, um, sometimes takes more of the pastor's time than needs to. You know what I mean, <laughs> another pastor's wife. Um, so we're going to get to this situation where you have uh, uh, Peter going out and he's and he and the apostles and they're trying to spread the word of God and there's some housekeeping things that need to be handled. So just like churches now, our church has a board of elders, they have a leadership team, and we're going to see um, what happens here when, when Peter needs to say, hey, I, I need some help with this. So it's the choosing of the seven. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, 
the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the, uh, the Grecian Jews were Jews outside of Jerusalem. Um, they have been brought up in Greek culture, but they're still the Jewish people. Their widows are not getting daily distribution of food. In no way do we see studying this that indicates that people were leaving them out. Is just, again, a housekeeping manner. So they needed to be more organized. They needed to figure out how everybody was going to get the food that they needed. And dis distribution was needed to be tweaked a bit. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, now remember disciples is followers. So there's 12, the original 12 disciples. You know, Judas is gone. We have Matthias. You see them referred to as the apostles because they're the ones going out outward spreading the news. The disciples are, are the people that are learning. Um, so there is a big group of them. So they got them all together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, brothers. They weren't saying this to be rude, that they were above this all, you know, when they call it as waiting on tables. Um, it, it's just that it can, it can be time consuming and get in the way of what they're called to do. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they're just saying that they have different things that they need to do. And I love here how they give responsibility to the disciples to pick these people. I think that's a, a good, um, a church discipline to let to let your people pick their leaders. Um, I know the Lutheran church is set up that way that you know we have the pastors that are are the shepherds but we have the board of elders who who are the ones that are are over that ministry and and over this and govern the spiritual matters of the church. So he's he's saying to the to the assembly to the disciples you pick the people that you feel are full of the spirit. And I think it, when you read this you really need to have put in mind the other things we talked about last week about all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, the, of having the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit, because it talked a lot about the different gifts and talents we have. So they're not saying that they're, again, that they're above this. Um, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and um, of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip. We're going to hear about Philip some more. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Par Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. The apostles laid hands on them to give these men authority to, to, do, to do things, to perform miracles. The apostles, we see as we study this phenomenon, could lay hands on someone and equip them. But these men did not then have the power to lay hands on other men. It always had to come from the original apostles. So it wasn't a, a succession line that goes through people. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So large number of priests. So we have people from the ranks of the enemy. So next week we pick up on Stephen being seized and his his wonderful sermon and and we see the first the first martyr. So let's see anything else? Oh, just again about that uh how the seven were the chosen to help and that goes to what we call the the priesthood of all believers who we all have a priestly role in the church and 
you know, for them, it was making sure food and goods were distributed. And we all have that role in our church, some role in the church, connecting that back to, to, the, to the gifts that the Spirit gives us. And we need to find those. We need to um, see what God is calling us to do, what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do to help the ministry of the church, because it really does help. Now, you can't get away from, from having to do the business of the church when you're a pastor. I know that. But sometimes the business of the church can get in the way. And that's why volunteers are so important. And a good church staff is so important because it gives everybody a chance to be able to do what they're being called to do. And I have never seen a pastor, in my experience, burn out from doing the work of the church. But sometimes church work burns them out. But the work of the gospel never never does. I mean, that's what we're called to do. And we have to get the other jobs done too, so everybody has a chance in their own way to be able to do the work of the gospel. So let's hold our hands in prayer, and then we will move on to some discussion. Dear Lord, we thank you today for revealing your Holy Scripture to us through the Holy Spirit. We pray simply that the gospel message flow through us and into the world to indeed aid in your mission of making disciple of all nations. In your name we pray. Amen.